Wow. We are uh, continuing our series on uh, Mark, journeying through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to finish up where we left off last week in Mark chapter 12, trying to, to work through this passage together as we continue this idea of learning how this man who lived thousands of years ago still has an immediate impact on our life today. Not just some historical impact, not just, you know, we can look back at him like other historical figures and see how they impacted our life through our government systems today or our laws or philosophies. We are actually impacted by the life of Christ daily and permanently as we walk through it. Uh, The peace, the hope, the things that we get to celebrate this Advent season that are true in our life are a response to and a gift from this Christ child, this Jesus that walked on this earth, and it's a beauty that we get to celebrate that. And so uh, last week, if you were here, we started, uh, I didn't know it was going to be a two-part sermon. We didn't get through all of it, so we divided it into two parts. So we started looking at, as Jesus was entering this final kind of week of his life and normal life here on earth before the arrest and crucifixion and death and eventual resurrection that he walked through, uh, he was having a crazy last week. It was Passover week. He shows up. As the triumphant entry comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, the, the crowds are cheering, really wanting to make him their king, and he comes to the temple, looks around, and then he heads home. The next day on Monday, he comes in with a chip on his shoulder, he curses a fig tree, cleanses the temple, he's angry, he, he's upset at what they've turned the religion into, and he gets very upset, and then he leaves again, and now day three, Tuesday, he comes back in, and... They're there to meet him. And they're like, you're not going to put on the show like you did yesterday, Jesus. Like, we are putting a stop to this. And they bring up a question in Scripture in Mark 11:27, And it says, as he came again to Jerusalem, he was walking in the te- temple. The chief priests, scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And this was the launching point of every attack that they were going to level at Jesus that day. And the truth is, what we said last week, is the beginning point and the launching point of every attack we level against Jesus in our own lives as well. When he asks us to do something, when he starts to demonstrate his authority, when he lays out a, a grand scheme and reveals his will for our life, and we're like, who, why do you get to tell me what to do? Why do you get to point me in this direction or encourage me in this? And why do you get to say what's right and, and what's wrong? And every attack, every pushback on Jesus comes back to this question of authority. And this pushback on authority is the true enemy of the kingdom of God. A lot of times we think the enemy of the kingdom of God is, you know, secular world who's morally making bad choices. Or or maybe it's even different religious systems that don't line up with Christianity. or, Or maybe it's even people who say there is no God and Jesus was no more than just a mere man who lived thousands of years ago. But what we find here in this passage and in this question is the true enemy of Jesus usually doesn't come from the outside. The the usual enemy of the kingdom of God is not an outside threat. It actually comes from the inside, from the inside, from people within the own system who fight against what we say we believe. And this is what we started looking at. Last week, we looked at Mark 12, 1 through 9, this parable of the tenants and uh, that the the priest put on to Jesus, basically saying, you know, who gives you this authority? And he pushed back on them. And we talked about how the priests were presumptuous, that they were trying to play the part of Jesus in people's lives. They were trying to be God when God never wanted them to be God. 
they were stepping into a stand-in role when God never wanted them. They exchanged stewardship for ownership. They acted like it was theirs. The kingdom of God was their kingdom instead of getting being a part of it. And the idea we ended on was this, is when we start to live this way, we want all the privileges of the kingdom of God without actually paying the price of what it means to follow God. And uh, that's where we got last week, kind of through that first enemy. And so what I want to do today is try to finish chapter 12. And uh, because, again, what happens here is the priests leave, and now all these other attacks keep coming Jesus' way. And the truth is, as I was reading through this, I've done this in my life too. Every attack I'm going to see today, I've done at some point. I've been presumptuous, just like the priests were. I've tried to be God in people's lives when God never intended me to do that. So let's look at the second one, jump right into it, and we'll go from there. This is in Mark 12, verse 13 through 15. So the priests have gone, and then it says, So they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Like they're buttering him up, right? Like, we know you're such a wise, wise man. He's there buttering him up. We know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? And he goes on there to give them a beautiful answer, which the answer is not as important today as this question that they level at him because this second wave of attack is sent by these Pharisees. Now, let me explain to you who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were not priests. They were like everyone else, except they had elevated themselves to the super religious. They were the ones saying, I am the model to follow. And they would create ways that you would follow them. Each one had different you know, here's, if you follow me, you have to do these 16 things. If you follow me, I have 17 things. If you do this one, I've got 32 things. They, had, they were creating for themselves the, to be the model of Christianity, the super religious. They had set rules, customs, and practices that had to be followed if you could say you were a true follower of Jesus. And the word that I want to use to describe these people is that they were very contentious. Contentious. They were very contentious. Which this means they were, the, the whole thing defined as this, they are characterized of causing uh, arguments and controversy. These guys were all about determining who was righteous and who was not. They had taken upon themselves to be God's enforcers. Like, you're in, you're out. They were always arguing with each other about who was more serious and who was more devoted. How did these guys get there? How did the Pharisees get there? More importantly, How do we get to the point in our lives where we start to think that we are the judge and jury of determining what level of righteousness is right in people's lives? How do we get to the point of creating categories of sinners and drawing lines that allow some people to keep walking out their faith and others to be cut out? How do we become experts on how God dispenses grace instead of realizing how desperate we are for his mercy and forgiveness? Because that's what Pharisees do. And we do the same thing. I think it boils down to a simple shift in our life. And this shift, happen, shift happens when we exchange community for uniformity. We, we exchange this idea of being a people of God to saying this is what you have to do to be a person of God. And so we exchange our community for uniformity. 
During this encounter, the Pharisees weren't just trying to trap Jesus into saying something that could get him into trouble, but they were trying to have him join their proclivity for drawing lines of distinction. What did they say? Should we pay or not? One or the other. You tell us, Jesus. And Jesus saw this for what it was. It was an attack on his kingdom. These men, these men, instead of finding ways to connect their lives with others in community, were actually finding ways to ostracize those who didn't fit their mold, their standards, and their terms of uniformity. They were exchanging community for uniformity. They had turned following God into a set of hurdles to get over instead of breaking down the walls of separation to connect people with God. And this switch from community to uniformity happens in our lives, and here's why I think it happens and how it happens. First thing we do is this. As we start to manipulate situations to make myself the winner and other people the loser. I'm the winner, you're the loser. We like to set traps. That's what they did in verse 13, right? Their, their intent was to lay a trap in front of Jesus, to not to really give him only one way to operate, where they would be viewed as the winner. They only like to give people one choice. Now, we talk about all the time as Christians, like, there is one way to God, which is Christ. Right? I'm a firm believer in, in that there, we have a, a one way through Christ, that, but that way through Christ is wide open to everyone. It is wide open. Christ doesn't put a gate for some people here, a gate for some people here, and a gate. There's, there's one choice that we get to make of Christ, but how we approach him can come in many different ways. Just think about Scripture. Jesus, every time he encountered somebody, didn't use the same language and the same approach. With some people, he said, go and sell everything and follow me. With other people, he said, leave your father and mother and come follow me. For some people, he said, pick up your mat and follow me. There was one simple thing in all of this. It was to follow him, just to follow. The call is to follow more so than to be uniform in our thought, our action, and our deed. And that's what these Pharisees were saying. There is only one way. I mean, if that was the truth, you know, then we would eventually maybe at this point figured out the one true church, the one way to get there. And now we'd all agree, right? Well, even in New York where there's not many churches, we have churches a few down here and there that we don't agree on everything. We have denominations that disagree. We have entire religious systems that disagree on the how, but we still like to put our one way on it. The one thing that we all have to agree on is Christ is the way. And how you walk to Christ, how you come to Christ, and how Christ deals with you, that can be different. The second thing that we do is we often initiate conversations where we feel like there is a predetermined response. You ever do this in your you ever do this with your spouse? Like you you know, like you ask a question knowing what the response has to be. Like you know, you're you're not really even up for a discussion, you're up for validation is what you are. And that's what the Pharisees do here. They're like, Do we pay or do we not pay? They're like, validate us. Validate us. We don't ask questions to get answers. We ask questions to get people to give us the answers we want. And that's what the Pharisees were doing here when they initiated this conversation with Jesus. And then this is what we do finally. We eliminate any opposing perspectives from our lives. We only surround ourselves with those who agree with us, who think exactly like us. And we have this uniformity of thought. And it said later on in Scripture when when Jesus said, that he basically said, bring me the the money, and he said, you know, whose picture on it? And they said, it's Caesar. And he says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what's God. It said they marveled at him. 
And I think part of that marveled is not that they were just overwhelmed by him and his thought and his wisdom, but they were like, wow, somebody thinks differently than us. Somebody think, I mean, we talked about this with the election a few years ago. You know, this vacuum thinking, like this group of people was like, it, the election has to come out this way, and this group of people, the election has to come out this way, and there was never any, any action. So everybody was shocked one way or the other. We, we create these vacuums of thought where we can't believe that somebody else would think differently than us. And that's what the Pharisees do. And when we do that, when we eliminate opposing perspectives, you know what else we eliminate? Influence. The ability to influence those that are different than us, that come at things different than us. And so here's what the idea, when we trade, make this trade for community for uniformity, here's what we're saying we want. We want wisdom without submission. (coughs) We would love the wisdom of God without actually having to submit our will to him. And what we actually like to do, say, I have the wisdom, and we want God to submit himself to us. And that's what the Pharisees, that's an enemy of the kingdom of God. It is this idea that all I'm going to do is be this contentious nature and always arguing to prove a point. And once my point is made, I have honored God. Honoring God isn't winning an argument. Expanding the kingdom of God is not winning an argument. Expanding the kingdom of God is the way that Jesus did it. To love, grace, and mercy, and personal interaction with people, even that were very different than him and thought very different than him. Let's look at the next uh, section here and, and the next attack that came Jesus' way. Verse 18. So we had the priest, the Pharisees, and now verse 18 says this. And now the Sadducees, there's a lot of C's in this. The pre- I mean, it's like, who are these people? Uh, the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they ask him a question, you know, questions all day. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brothers die and leaves his wife, with, but leaves with no children, the man must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. This was a command of, uh, in the Old Testament, if a widow, had, you know, if, if, her, if her husband died, she had no kids, the brother of that husband was supposed to marry her and <coughs> take care of her. So they ask him, they put the scenario. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and so on and so on. And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman then finally died. This poor woman had to put up with seven men. She finally died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven all had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? I mean, he didn't even answer the question. He's like, this is ludicrous. This is not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. These guys are a bunch of idiots, right? I mean, yeah, they, there's no, this is not a real life situation. This was not, hey, you know Janet down the street. You know, you know she married those seven guys, all those brothers. Like, what do we do? How do we deal with this? This was not a real, all they did, they came up with a no-win situation, right? Like, there's no way that there's an, answer, an accurate answer to this question. And what they were trying to do is to prove a point. And here's what I call these guys. The, there's different words for them. What I call them is they're frivolous. They're just frivolous people. They're worried about the minutia, the details. Can I tell you the Sadducees were? They were a group of priests and social leaders that all they were focused on exclusively was what was written in the Torah or the law, what Moses wrote down. 
These men spent most of their time debating the minutia of the Torah and then arguing with themselves and everyone else about trivial matters that were frivolous. And here's what I mean by frivolous. When you impart importance or seriousness, seriousness to things of no value, of no value. Thank God we don't do this in our life anymore, right? Thank we, we don't do this in our marriages or even with our kids or our friends that we hold things that are just frivolous up to the almighty and the, and the most powerful in our lives. How did these guys get here? More importantly, how do we get to this point of thinking of letting our time and thoughts be consumed by frivolous and meaningless issues related to our faith instead of things that really matter? Why do churches sometimes get so consumed with arguing about things like music or what to wear or what color the carpet ought to be? Why, why do we have endless arguments about how the world was formed, how it's going to end, and trying to figure out the mechanics of God's grace and forgiveness rather than just accepting it? Can I tell you something about the beginning of the world and the end of the world? I, one has not happened yet. One has happened, and I wasn't there for it. I don't know anybody who was. And we can sit all day and talk about this. The, the, the thing I believe with all my heart is God created us. He formed this world in whatever way and whatever time frame he wanted to. And one day there's probably going to be an end to this world. There's going to be a culmination of all things. I don't know. I, I don't really want to spend my time talking about that. I'd rather actually talk about how I'm being impacted today, not what was or maybe what will be, but what is today. But these guys, these Sadducees, were so in tune with the minutia of things that that's all they were concerned about. And Jesus knew they weren't asking him a question. They were actually just wasting his time. It was an enemy of the kingdom. And it boils down to a simple switch. And here's what it is. We exchange obedience for just observations. We don't really want to be obedient to Christ. We just want to make keen observations so that people think we've seen something new or experienced something new. They try to impress each other by the minutiae. Maybe you haven't read this or this or that. And they, Have you read this book? Have you read that book? And we all try to impress each other with the minutiae of knowledge we know and the observations we can make instead of actually obeying God. They were just trying to debate Jesus into a debate that no one was going to win. It was a fruitless conversation. These men were looking to the scriptures for set answers instead of true learning and missed the power of God completely. How does this switch happen? A few ways. One is we disguise our answers as questions. They go a step further than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, the, the Sadducees do. They go a step further. They basically tell you what their answer is in their question. It's not really a question. So these were the kings of rhetorical questions. They gave you their answer in their question. They're not up for a conversation. They're up for making a point. All they want to do is prove a point. You have any friends like that? You have a spouse like, you know, not, you ever like that? All you're worried about is to make sure everybody agrees with you than actually opening up to having a genuine conversation. Second thing they do is they debate the trivial over what's truly impactful. They don't talk about the big things. They talk about the little things. Instead of talking about loving God and others, where it's, you know, it's a command, love God and others. They don't talk about what it means to love or who God is or others. What they would say, what does the and mean? Like when it says God and, let's dissect the and. They get to the trivial part without like dealing with the big things. And here's the final thing. We often desire to win an argument more than we actually desire to obey God. I know this is where it shows up most often in my life. 
we start to view our spiritual maturity based on how much we can defend our positions and defeat, defeat opposing views rather than actually living out our faith, actually walking in obedience. And here's what we, what we do when we do this. We actually want accuracy without authenticity. We think that if we can just be accurate in the faith and we get every little minutia piece right, then everything's going to fall into place. And Jesus is like, that's an enemy. It's not about accuracy. It's about authenticity. Be authentic. Let the truth deal with you where you are than saying that you got the truth all figured out. I've been on this faith journey a long time. A long time. There's one thing I can communicate to you with absolute truth today in this faith journey. There are things I do not know and will never know about what it means to follow Jesus. Things I don't understand. And I'm growing every day. And what I do is not, not try to communicate to you how accurate I am and everything, but how authentic I try to be and how authentic we ought to be as a church in saying, God, deal with us. Here's who I am right now. Let me take a step tomorrow. Jamal and Chase and I were at lunch on Friday, and uh, there was a, if you know Jamal, he loves to, to work out, and he was explaining to us a new workout regime of, flow, what's it, what was it called, flow? Flow state, all right? You can go look at flow. But instead of like doing 500 push-ups today, what if I did 50 today, 50 tomorrow, 50 every day? 50, instead of just like, boom, one day here and then nothing for a week and then a boom one. And I thought as we were talking about this, I was like, this is this. Instead of trying to follow God with everything I got in this one moment, in this one hour, what if I just did a little bit of obedience here and there? Then all of a sudden my life is going to be characterized by obedience as a whole versus moments of obedience. I would much rather my life be characterized by obedience than I can look back at just moments of obedience. The final attack that comes is in, starts in verse 28. And it's, uh, now they send somebody else. And it says, now one of the scribes came up. Another person, we'll talk about who that is in a minute. But a scribe came up, heard them disputing with one another, this debating, and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is this. And he's quoting out of Deuteronomy here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. He agrees with Jesus. But we're going to learn here in a minute what a scribe is and why him just agreeing was not him actually doing. And then Jesus saw that he had answered wisely in verse 34. And I love this here. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> like they were done for the day, all right? We are done. So this final way, let me talk about who this scribe is. The scribe are a group of religious leaders, some of them priests, some of them not, that were experts in how religious law was supposed to play out in the practical law and the governing law. They would write up legal, legal documents. They were brought in to make final determinations about how religious law was supposed to be interpreted and enforced. Scribes were detailed people. They wanted to make sure the law was followed down to the last detail. The way that these men enforced the law had actually made people hesitant to do anything 
unless it was specifically condoned by the scribes out of fear of messing up and breaking some obscure law. They created an atmosphere of caution, more worried about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. And this is what I call a cautious scribe. And what I mean by cautious is this. There was fear of movement and engagement based on an unfounded fear of disappointing God. That's what the scribes created. This is why they were an enemy to God. This is why they were close, but not all the way in the kingdom of God. How did the scribe get to this point of being so close to the kingdom of God, understanding what it is to do, but yet still missing out on who Jesus was and what he was calling them to do? More importantly, how do we get to the point? How do we get to that point of thinking that following Jesus is more about knowing the Bible, quoting the Bible, memorizing the Bible, rather than actually living out the commands of God? How do we get to the point where we think that the knowledge that we acquire and that we study the scriptures actually paralyzes us from moving rather than actually motivating us because of our fear that we might mess up? I think it boils down to another simple shift in our life, and this shift happens when we exchange exercise for knowledge. All we want is knowledge. I don't know about you. I I know I was brought up in a church environment. Many of us were brought up and taught over the years in church environments that following God was knowing the Bible and knowing what not to do. That was much of my early understanding of Christianity. Study the Bible, find out what Jesus or God says don't do, and then make sure you don't do those things. It was a list of things, right? I mean, we can all, maybe you had a different list, your church taught something different or whatever, but like you don't do these things. And if you don't do those things, you're a, you're a good Christian. And it created this cautious mentality in my life, and I think in many Christians' lives, where we are more worried about messing up than actually doing something for God. I don't want to do anything to displease God, so I just won't do anything. And just like this scribe, I think Jesus would tell us, you are very close to the kingdom, but you're still missing it. Pursuing God is not about just pursuing the knowledge of him, but it's about exercising the practices of him, the practice of forgiveness, the practice of showing grace, the practice of loving your neighbor, the practice of loving your enemy. These are things that we exercise and do. Not just no. And this is why it's the enemy to the kingdom. And this which happens when these things happen in our life. One, when we start to equate agreement with the scripture to an expression of faith. Yeah, I agree we should love our neighbor. I agree that we should love our enemy. But when I actually have an opportunity to do it, I don't do it. That hadn't really impacted me. But because I believe it's right, I say that I'm a person of faith just because I acknowledge it. And this is why Jesus said, you are so close. I'm glad you believe it. But now start doing it. This is actually why I taught it. I didn't taught it to be quoted. I taught it to be done. And we get so caught up in the quoting sometimes that we don't actually do. Second thing is this. We often expect Jesus to validate our agreement with him. I mean, I think this is what the scribe was doing. He asked Jesus a question And Jesus gave him a beautiful answer from Scripture, from the Old Testament. And what does the scribe do? He basically repeats it back to, oh, you are right, teacher. And you said this, 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 and this. And I think what he was expecting Jesus to do next was like, and you are right, scribe. Congratulations. You are a key member of this 
supreme religious council, whatever they are, whichever title you want to take. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, you're close, but you're not there. And the guy was like, no more questions from me. Nobody else had any more questions for God. But don't we do, when we agree with God, sometimes we want God to come behind us and slap us on the back. Say, good job. Thanks for agreeing with me. Now it makes it all better. I mean, it's the, I don't know if you remember these bumper stickers that were out for like, like, God is my co-pilot. Remember that? Like, uh, and I thought, you know, that sounds kind of cool, but it's wrong. It's theologically wrong. God and I are both, aren't both in the cockpit. He's not, hey, once you, uh, once you drive for a while now, not, you know, you figure out where, it's not the way it works. God's the pilot. We're following him. We get to be along on his journey and where he's going. And we get the beauty of, we get to enjoy it. We get to follow him. But he's not our, we're not co-pilots with Jesus. We, we're his followers. And I love how we think we've got to be validated sometimes. And then the third thing we do is we often excel at teaching truth more than we do living truth. And I'm telling you, as a teacher, a regular teacher of the Bible, I've got to be very careful of this. And it is so easy to put things. I love to wordsmith things and all that kind of stuff. I love to be able to put things in a memorable, memorable pieces and digestible bites. And, man, it's so easy sometimes to teach it rather than actually live it. And this is what we can't do. This is what the scribes do. This does nothing. And here's what it ends up being. We actually want sanctification then without surrender. We want to act like we've been sanctified by, by God when we've never really surrendered to God. We can agree with God without ever letting it affect how we walk it out. The amazing thing, Jesus has answered all these attacks beautifully and with great wisdom and insight. That morning and afternoon in the temple had probably been a trying one for Jesus, and as the day was drawing to a close, Jesus and his disciples sat down and watched as those leaving the temples were making their offerings. And as they were doing this, imagine all, all the people that had been in front of Jesus that day. Priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, crowds. They're sitting there finally just by them. And Jesus sees something that he identifies as a true hero of the faith. Not an enemy, but a hero and let's read this and close with this. Mark twelve forty one says this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make up about a penny. And he called his disciples to them and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in the box, more than all of those who have contributed in the offering box. For they contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, and she had to live on. This simple woman put all these religious men of that day to shame in a very simple act. Not just an act of generosity, but an act of genuine obedience and faith. How did she get there? It's a simple step. She exchanged everything for faith. She exchanged her contentious spirit from faith, her presumptive nature for faith, her frivolous thoughts for faith, her cautious spirit for faith. She exchanged everything for faith. She didn't hold anything back. Faith is power. It is the most powerful of all forces that allow us to experience the true nature of God and the true promises of following Christ. It is letting go of all those other things and grabbing hold of Christ. So my question as we end today is this. Will you trade your religious hang-ups for a faith in a relationship 
with Jesus. Faith is the power behind changes in our lives, spiritual, physical, emotional. There's stories all throughout. Think about this. There was a woman with an issue of blood who was bleeding for 14 years. She came up to Jesus and he said, take heart, your faith has made you whole. There were two blind men that came to Jesus and he said, according to your faith, it has been done and they had their sight. A woman's daughter was oppressed by a demon and he said, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed. There was a blind beggar that we looked at just a few weeks ago. And he said, your faith has made you whole. There was an adulterous woman who came up to Jesus and he said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There was a leper who said, your faith has made you well. And he left cleansed. There was a centurion servant who was dying. And he said, never have I seen such faith in all of Israel. And he was healed in that moment. Will you allow your faith in Jesus to make you whole today? Whether you're blind, deaf, dumb, sick, whatever, whatever you're holding on to as your defining thing, your contentious spirit, your cautious spirit, your frivolous, presumptive nature, would you stop and let go and start being full of faith? Will you allow faith in Jesus to make you whole today? Will you pray with me? God, I'm grateful that we get to look at these examples of Scripture and even in how people have negatively approached Jesus, how he answered them and how he contended for the truth gives us hope that we celebrate on this Advent season. God, our hope is not found in who we get to be or our questions or uh, how we want to approach you. Our hope is found completely in you. God, may we start to ask questions about what faith means. May we start to to wrestle with what it means to follow you completely. And God, would we trade anything that's causing us, whether it's religious or cultural or anything else that's causing us to have a hang-up to follow you, would we trade that for a faith and a willingness to trust? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.